Welcome back to another episode of The 10th Muse. I'm Helena. And I'm Siobhan. And this is the podcast where we talk about a unique collection of women through history that have done pretty amazing things. Yep, that's right. So from artists to activists, scientists to singers, these are not the women you already know. Instead, they're women that we think deserve more recognition and we hope that you enjoy hearing about them as much as we do. Welcome to episode six of The Tenth Muse. We are back after a little bit of a hiatus. We had a few weeks off due to deadlines. So even though we said we'd be making more episodes in this quarantine, we have actually made less. Less, yeah. Sorry about that. Well, we didn't make a promise to you all. We made a a generalised assumption that was proved to be completely untrue. But yeah, we're back and um, we've got a full length episode for you this week. Woohoo, full length. (laughs) I'm excited for this one. one. I'm so intrigued. Everyone, you know that we don't tell each other in advance who we've researched. And I've this week had Helena messaging me being like, I'm so excited about this. She's been giving me vague hints, but I've had no idea. Not very, like, informative hints, but she has been hinting. And uh, so I've told her she has to go first this week because I'm so intrigued that I actually can't wait. And (laughs) I, I can't do mine thinking about who you're doing so we're gonna have to have you go first i'm excited it's a it is a good one oh my god she's just grinning at me people she she knows she's got a good in she's excited here comes the 10th muse who have you got this week helena well so my person is unnamed but so the the context of it is it's a 10th century burka viking grave in south sweden so this is the, the this is the starting point of this story. So <laughs> wait, hold on. I'm getting chucked in the deep end. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, a little bit about me. I have a really kind of strong nerdy love of like Viking history, and particularly because I'm from Northumberland, and there's a lot of like Viking history in my area because we've got Lindisfarne mm-hmm. really really close, which is like one of the I think potentially the first place the vikings landed Mm -hmm. so i've always kind of been around it like i lived just near the roman wall when i was younger so all that kind of history just really interests me i'll tell you that my town is called witness because of the vikings ah nice yeah so when you approach witness from the sea it sticks out from the land like it looks like a a wide nose no way so it was like vidness that's cool i like that it's witness and it's because the vikings settled in i believe what is now runcorn but like which is the town the the enemy town across the uh, across the river mersey but yeah witness which is where i'm from that is also viking based and there's a fun fact for my viking lover helena yeah that's really interesting i also really like like interesting place names so yeah (laughs) This one, I just kind of stumbled across this when I was, I just typed in Viking women warriors and this came up and I was so gripped by this story. So basically, it starts oh in the 10th God. century. I'm so excited. Yeah, you should be. I'm so you hyped. Be. So in South <laughs> okay. Sweden, there's a settlement called Burka and there's like a huge Viking burial ground there. And there's one particular grave from the 10th century that is really interesting. It was unearthed in the 1870s by a group of archaeologists and was always assumed that it was a male warrior because basically it was one of two graves in the entire cemetery, in the entire graveyard that contained a full set of weapons. Right. So, and they were really, really high quality weapons. There was like a bow and arrows. 
there was um, swords and axes and things. So they kind of all pointed towards the person being a professional warrior and potentially a mounted archer. They were also found buried in very high quality clothes, which could have potentially been imported. And it also included a hat or a helmet with tassels, which was a way of indicating they were a cavalry commander or very high status in society. It's really, really interesting. What was even more interesting that separated it from just being like a normal warrior's grave was that this Mm -hmm. Viking was buried with a full gaming set, which highlighted that they were in like a command role. Because obviously, if you're buried with a gaming set, you're good at like tactics. You're a good tactician. So this person was very, very high up in the military. Um, I've read some articles which suggest that they're like in the role just under like royal high command. So you know, the king or whatever's first military warriors. So, yeah, so super interesting. So I'll paint you a little picture of this grave. It was located in a really visible place between the sea and the town area. It was marked by a massive boulder. So people always would know where the great warrior was buried. Inside the grave, there's the warrior's body dressed in this really high quality uniform with the tasseled hat, including multiple weapons with the bows and arrows and the swords. Full gaming set, two shields and two horses were sacrificed as well. And as I said before, it's only one of two graves in this whole burial ground that contained the full set of weaponry. Okay. So it's pretty special in that respect. Right. So obviously by that, and because if we think about the context of kind of Victorian society when it was found in the 1870s, and also now, I guess, and the the person who has kind of re- analyzed this grave in 2017 they admit there's nothing in this grave to suggest that it was female yeah however it's not stereotypically a male dress either it's not like a male outfit because it's it's just because it's Mm -hmm. quite a high-ranking outfit so if you think of like if you watch like a viking program there were like lots of you know high-ranking males Mm -hmm. who'd wear the the kind of full-length gown or outfit as opposed to like a warrior that wear like a shorter tabard which is cut just before the knees so you know it's understandable that like it could have been you know not specific to a particular gender but naturally because it was a warrior in the 1870s it was unquestionably described as a male warrior's grave so what was interesting then in 2014 there was a bioarchaeologist from Stockholm University called Anna Kjellström who tried to identify the bones as female. She was immediately discounted by, you know, saying that the bones must have been jumbled up with another another person, oh, like a, another woman, yeah. or they were mislabeled. Yeah, so all these all these like little kind of arguments to suggest that you know she was wrong. Mm. She could obviously it could never you know be yeah. female. It's it's obviously it's obviously a man's grave like it's a warrior obviously well obviously the female scientist is wrong as well like come on yeah you can't yeah. you're just labeling this wrong you're just you know uh-huh. it's pretty standard <laughs> yeah literally standard there's a big revelation in 2017 when there's an archaeologist from Uppsala university named charlotte hedenstierna johnson she along with her team they reanalyzed the skeleton using modern technology to analyze the dna and so in order to prove not only that it was from the same person so like it was it was a a whole skeleton rather than just like mixed up with like other bones 
they had to extract like the mitochondria DNA because that's like the, the central DNA. And so it proved that it was all one person. But not only that, she published in her journal of the findings, she published it in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology. And literally on the first page in the results section, it says, the genomic results revealed the lack of a Y chromosome and thus a female biological sex. And, you know, it was literally there on the page. Yeah, like, this is just the facts. Deal with it. There was no Y chromosome. This yeah. person was a female. Mm-hmm. I just, just, I like the, the blunt statement at the outset. She's not buried the lead. She's just going, this is the fact. Yeah. Deal with it. Yeah, I love it. She's like, all these bones are linked. They are one person mm-hmm. and it's a woman. Love it. And it's scientific fact. And it absolutely shook the archaeological and anthropological communities. They immediately began to question it, obviously, again, which Head and Stiena Johnson found really disappointing that even in 2017, the idea and the fact as well that a, f- a Viking warrior yeah. was female was just unacceptable. Again, like even in 2017, many of her contemporaries immediately discounted this, like the validity of it. Mm-hmm. But the facts are there. Like she was like, I don't, I don't know what more to tell you. <laughs> you can test it yourself, but like, it's just it's there's fact. no XY chromosome. <laughs> yeah, literally. So yeah, it's just really interesting, and it also kind of flipped ideas of gender in kind of Viking society on its head. And it's it, there's quite a lot of mythology that also highlights that there were female warriors, though. So, for example, there's a 10th century Irish text which talks about this red girl who was a female warrior who led a Viking fleet to Ireland. And there's a 13th century saga called Saga of the Volsungs, which talks about shield maidens fighting side by side with men. Like, I'm, I think anyone who has any kind of interest, even like a vague interest yeah. in Viking history by like watching the TV shows and things, they'll have heard of like yeah. a shield maiden and then you know so it's not a common it's not an uncommon mm-hmm. idea the fact that there were shield maidens um you know it's it's even in things like lord of the rings vikings the last kingdom which is just yeah. out even like game of thrones yeah i mean it, it's it's literally everywhere like all i'm picturing is like um egret from game of thrones this like yeah holding yeah. their own that's like all i can picture right now i think any kind of non anglo-saxon british yeah fighting group has depictions of shield maidens so yeah, yeah it's, it's really interesting on top of that there's mythology of the gods so the valkyries were depicted as armored women mm-hmm. and they would take warriors up to sit with odin after they died in battle so yeah as i said it really turned the tale on the perceived roles of women in viking society because he was like very clear evidence that a woman could rise to a very high rank and command armies yeah so that was the implication then that she like commanded army because I know you were listing all the stuff she was found with yeah. and that obviously indicated her high status but you're literally saying that she was that high up that she was commanding. Yeah. So that's what the importance of the game set is that like the game set meant that she was an important tactician so she yeah, did okay. army tactics and she she was a commander with the tactics. Okay. Which is the um Hedenstiana Johnson says multiple times in all the interviews she's done that that is what made it really unique right okay. is that you know it's it's one of two full sets of of weaponry and also she has the game set so she she had a lot of respect mm-hmm. from her people what was also interesting as well that it wasn't just like a closed off viking community this was like the hub of viking 
um, society in Sweden. It was yeah. like a hub of trade from um, the east as well as the west. So you had uh, Byzantine traders coming through, you know, traders from the north, from Norway. And ov- obviously they, they then went west to England, mm-hmm. Ireland and places as well. So it was a big international hub. And she, in order to be like a female commander with all of those international communities, I think you must be able to command respect. Yeah. And she, she had it. Yeah, like, sounds like it, yeah. Yeah. What was um interesting as well, I thought was interesting, is that one of the main questions raised after the 2017 study was whether the warrior was a transgender man. Oh, okay. Yeah, Hensdiana Johnson, she explained that transgender is such a modern politicized intellectual and western term and as such is problematic to apply to people Mm -hmm. of the more remote past but that being said the researchers are quick to note that it's impossible to discount any of the many other possibilities across a wide gender spectrum some perhaps unknown to us but familiar to the people of the time yeah so you know they they could well have had you know something that was similar to a transgender um identity back in those times yeah that's really interesting. Like, I wouldn't have even thought about that. Yeah. Well, if you think of, you know, Mulan, it's not just a Disney film. That's also... <laughs> We're going to come back to my favourite Disney film. She loves Mulan, people. She <laughs> no, loves but, like, it. If you think about it, it, it comes from... That comes from, like, Chinese mythology. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. And yeah. it's... I, I think there are so many books and, like, stories of women who would go into battle disguised as men. Um, You know, I've just finished... The Monstrous Regiment by Terry Pratchett. And although you can argue that it's just fictitious, but, like, what is fiction if it's not based on some element of truth? Or, like, you know, women nowadays, why, if it wasn't true, why would women go into the armies nowadays? It's because they want to fight. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I, I think there is definitely an element of truth to it. And the fact that this grave was proved to be female it's just such a huge like kick in the face to Mm -hmm. like all the kind of prescriptive archaeological community of the kind of victorian period and said actually no like here is the facts this was a woman yeah it's it's really interesting you can't even you can't ascribe like victorian anglo-saxon values to ancient societies where you know roles were so different and often like yeah you know if if you were a woman and you had the chance to like learn to defend your your family yeah i'm, I'm sure you would and i'm sure yeah. obviously at the, at the time when society wasn't stable and they did have warfare like that i'm sure families would have you know definitely wanted to teach their their female children to fight mm-hmm female children daughter, daughters I've got the word for daughters <laughs> female children they're female children <laughs> I just nodded along as well I fully was like yep yep I'm with you I know I know um I was gonna say they're women children and then I was like nope that's not right <laughs> then I settled with female children which is still not right um daughters is the right I'm word trying to take a slight <laughs> drink of water and you like she just spat that out women... it was comedic <laughs> Yeah, so there's there's like many accounts, as I said, through like fiction of 
women becoming warriors but there's also i mentioned the tv show vikings and if you've watched that i was gonna say you're a fan of that show love it i love vikings you watched all my i've not watched it um i've not watched it yet my dad loves vikings i've just not i've not watched it it's one of his recommendations i've not gone around to yeah it's really good the first kind of i think it, it started to dwindle off for me i don't remember when probably about like season four or five because it, it's very mm-hmm. long. I don't know how many seasons there are, but like, it's right. it's really good. But th- this should be a quarantine watch for me. Oh God, yeah, it's brilliant. As we're still in lockdown. So good. Okay, all right. I'll take any recommendations. And everyone else should watch it too. You should also watch The Last Kingdom on Netflix because it's great. That's another Viking show that I'm going to tell everyone about. <laughs> but yeah, okay. so Vikings. If you have watched this, you'll know about Lagatha who is the famous um, Viking warrior Ragnar Lothbrok's first wife. She is a very famous female Viking warrior who, she's not in that many histories. And even in, you know, the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok, she's kind of just in there as like a footnote to his story, but she's still pretty impressive and she kind of saves his life multiple times. So I'm going to tell you her story as well because... It's just it's just all links in with the female mm-hmm. warrior. Oh no, I'm enjoying it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the saga of Ragnar, Ragnar Lothbrok, there's um a king who he invades in Norway and kills a lot of people and a lot of women and this one woman Lagatha comes to Ragnar and says, you know, all of our people are being killed. Um will you like come and help us fight the battle so they they go and fight this king i can't remember his name mm-hmm. unfortunately but lagatha really impresses ragnar with her prowess in battle because she's depicted as standing there like on the front lines with her hair streaming down her, her back and she commanded a lot of respect because she was so like vicious and really good in battle but they could all see she was a woman as well so everyone was like wow that's pretty cool <laughs> and he tries to woo her by sending messages in a kind of long distance courtship um, and she feigns interest in him. But when he goes to win her, she's trained a bear and a dog to guard her and kill her potential suitor, which I think is great. <laughs> Iconic. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And um, But he kills them and they get married and have children. Um, and he stays in Norway with her uh. for three years. And he just kills them. <laughs> but he kills it says, them. It says in it, he kills one with a sphere and strangles the other but it doesn't say which and so you i just i just find it funny to think of the idea of ragnar strangling a bear <laughs> maybe he just had really big hands <laughs> maybe he's just really like really tall and like he just went for it well i mean he was this this famed warrior so potentially mm-hmm. you know true and um yeah so he stays in norway with her um for three years they have three children together two daughters and a son but he eventually leaves her he goes because he wants to get with this other woman and a a new wife i think back in sweden Mm -hmm. if you watch the the series vikings the names and kind of timelines in the saga are slightly different obviously it's a little bit embellished um to make it interesting Mm -hmm. and interesting do they make it of course so there's a couple more wars in ragnar's home homeland in sweden and he appeals to lagatha for help and she agrees even though he cast her aside in this time actually lagatha's remarried so she brings like her husband's kind of army and she sends 120 ships which is a heck of a lot um, yeah 
But not only this, when Ragnar begins to lose the battle and his son is injured, Lagatha comes round the back of Ragnar's enemies and brutally defeats them, winning the battle. So she has, like, saved his ass twice now. Yeah. <laughs> twice. Yeah, not twice once, twice. Now. Write it down. <laughs> I'm returning home. Do you know what she does? Oh, God. She kills her husband I... and rolls in his head. <laughs> she has a knife um, or like a spearhead in her dress and she just kills her husband because she's like, nah, <laughs> this is my land. <laughs> yeah, so I think Lagatha's really, really cool. She's also played by Catherine Winnick in the show who has this beautiful, like, bright blonde hair. And she she looks like what you'd imagine a Valkyrie to look like. Okay. Um, but see, the only really cool. Valkyrie in my heart is Tess Thompson in Thor. Ragnarok. Okay, I think you'll like. That's my only. That's like, my like Valkyrie. Either. Every time you say Valkyrie, okay. I'm picturing that. Oh yeah. Which obviously she isn't actually <laughs> correct, but I'm just thinking. Oh yeah, Valkyrie in the Thor Ragnarok. Yeah, um, I know exactly yeah. who you mean. Tess Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was the story of Lagatha, mm-hmm. the potentially most famous shield maiden. Okay. I just keep wanting to say the shield maiden of Rohan, but that's a story for another time. <laughs> okay. So on to the other Viking show that I've been raving about, which is The Last Kingdom. It's based on the books by Bernard Cornwell, which is... Have you read the books? Uh, My dad has. I really want to read them. We got my dad into them like ages ago. And as a family, we've all loved like The Last Kingdom. Yeah. It's partially set in Northumberland as well, um, because the main character, Uhtred, wants to reclaim his homeland of Bebenburg, which, if you know Northumberland, is the Viking name for Bamborough which is just up the road from us. Listeners, did you um did you know that Helen is from Northumberland? I don't know if she's ever mentioned it. It's literally my only personality trait. <laughs> I'm going to say that now. <laughs> did you uh, just and so you all know listeners, one. she's from Northumberland. Just to let you all know if you you've hadn't clocked by I now. If I haven't mentioned it enough times. She's um she's definitely from Northumberland and she really it's likes cool. Mulan. <laughs> it's really cool. I'm not knocking it. <laughs> Bamber is the location for many, many film shoots. Okay. Macbeth with Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard. She's got a full fax about Northumberland. Here we go. God, I will crack them out. This, okay, this is not the time. <laughs> I'll give you some witness ones in return. The Last Kingdom, there's um, a character in it called Breeder, who is a really mm-hmm. f- like fearsome shield maiden or like she's like a Viking warrior. And I can't actually find any evidence that she was based on a specific person. But in it, I think she just kind of embodies all the characteristics okay. of like a strong Viking woman. And in that she's she's really like, she's just like get up and go. She's really vicious and, you know, mm-hmm. totally battle hardened. But she's also like really, she's really cunning and intelligent and quick witted and she she snaps at all the men she's she's great she's like a really really strong person you know she goes into battle maybe a bit of a spoiler for season four but she goes into battle pregnant like mm-hmm. eight months pregnant and she's just like stop stop <laughs> kill let's burn down this town let's you know kill the king of wales <laughs> and she's like eight months pregnant and that is how i want to live my life <laughs> I wish I wish this was a somehow at this moment that podcasts were visual because I think people need to see how excited. <laughs> I just mind the the stab. Yeah, she stab, was like, stab, stab, stab. D- d-. <laughs> She's really into this story, everyone. It's really good. It's really yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, I can't tell you how 
excited Viking history makes me because it's probably <laughs> embarrassingly so. But yeah, so that is that is my story of the Burka Viking grave in South Sweden from the 10th century. That's amazing. Amazing. I know. I, yeah, that's so cool. It's I very love, exciting. I love getting to talk about people where you can delve into like the pop culture that's been made around them yeah like, me too it's like both of our mini muses were like to do with you know you know listeners if you've not listened you know catch up on those but to do with like you know women who made films in my case women who are writers and you're like people who've contributed in like a yeah. massive way and getting to look at the cultural perceptions of them and representations is like really cool uh-huh yeah, yeah. no i agree like i i love I love any I love historical fiction and like historical mm-hmm. kind of TV shows um yeah. period dramas. Shout out Kira Knightley again. Uh, <laughs> she's great. Um, yeah. This is a Kira Knightley fan podcast. <laughs> I might make one of those. <laughs> yeah. So that is that is my story and you know, Amazing. I think there's a whole collection of, of fa- fabulous women in that. There's not just this female warrior. There's the archaeologists as well who mm-hmm. worked, you know, despite being cast down by their community yeah. or despite being pushed back, who worked and, you know, used the technology and the resources available to them and said, no, we're right. Like, yeah. this is a this is a woman. Yeah, that's I love that. That's maybe my favorite part of that story is like the, the fact that she was like, no, I know I'm right. Yeah. I'm going to prove I'm right. And she had the science to back it up. Like, I love that. Yeah. Love it. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, yeah, I, I think there's there's multiple tenth muses in this one. And, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm really glad you liked that because I had a great time talking no, about it. No, li- loved it. Yeah. I wish everyone could see... I wish everyone could see you fighting on your imaginary battlefield then. <laughs> I just... It was next level. <laughs> so good. So good, Helena. Okay. That's my story over. So what is your 10th muse? Okay, so this week I'm going to give you like a slight crash course on some LGBTQ American history. Nice. I love it. I was waiting for this because you said you wanted to talk about this yeah. for like since we started. Yeah, exactly. And and so I'm going to tell you specifically about a woman called Phyllis Lyon who she is known as one half of like a pioneering gay rights couple. So I'm touching on them both as a couple quite a lot. Because basically I had this ready a couple of weeks ago before we took our little break as a sort of tribute because she sadly passed away quite recently on the, the 9th of April this year. So she was age 95. But yeah, so when she passed, it kind of mm. made, you know, headlines around the world, really. So wow. I'm going to talk about it so I'm going to talk about Phyllis and her wife who was Dorothy Louise who was known as Del Martin mm-hmm. and they were both journalists feminists gay rights activists pioneers and icons wow. is how I'm going to describe them I, w- I would have liked to have met them yeah well <laughs> get in line <laughs> <laughs> there was one amazing tribute piece I read by a lady called Kate Kendall for the San Francisco Chronicle and it's like this incredibly moving tribute and her writing is quite poetic even I would say she closes the piece, for example. So she says at the end, at the end of every visit I had with Phyllis, she would stand at the large picture window of their home. I would walk down the many stairs, stop at my car and look up. Phyllis would be there. I would wave and blow her a kiss. She would reciprocate. I would then get in my car and leave. We repeated that routine countless times and I never took it for granted. The loss of that moment is just the beginning of what I will miss about the loss of this iconic and irreplaceable lion. Wow. And that like... It's really poetic. It's so she's literally just talking about how she was friends with this woman. So, mm. 
she lived an incredible life and she made major changes for LGBTQ people across America with her wife, Del. So I'm going to just tell you a bit about her, really. Go for it. Give you a little crash course in history. <laughs> yeah, I like it. All right, it. so Phyllis was born on the 10th of November in 1924 in Oklahoma. Her dad, William Lyon, was a salesman and her mum, Lorena Bell Ferguson, before she was lying, was a homemaker. They moved to Sacramento in the early 1940s and she ended up getting a degree in journalism at the University of California in Berkeley in 1946. Then she worked as a reporter for the Chico Enterprise Record in the 1940s and on she was on the editorial staff of two Seattle magazines in the 1950s. And um, she met Del Martin in 1950 in Seattle when they started working for the same magazine. So they got together in 1952 and then in 1953 they moved to San Francisco and they moved in together on Valentine's Day in 1953. Aww. This quote just made me laugh. So years later, Lion talked about how they like learned to live with each other at the time and she says, we really only had problems our first year together. Del would leave her shoes in the middle of the room and I'd throw them out the window. So <laughs> <laughs> just uh, sums Love up it. living in each other's space, I guess. Have you and Alicia's thrown each other's shoes out the window yet? <laughs> no, we've not thrown each other's shoes out the window. We are currently living, when we're at my house, we're currently in a single bedroom. So we have a single bed and a bloke match on the floor. So it's quite Tight. enclosed. Mm. It's quite a lot, yeah. But anyway. And maybe I'll just throw shoes out the window if she's annoying me. That's maybe the way to go. Yeah. So yeah, so they moved to an apartment on Castro Street in San Francisco. So I'm wondering if you know anything about the Castro in San Francisco. No, nothing. Oh, here we go. Here's my first lesson for you. Tell me. Okay, so the Castro is like a district in San Francisco. It's one of the first gay neighborhoods in the US, like that specifically is like a gay neighborhood. It's kind of nicknamed the Gay Mecca. Mm -hmm. I traveled around the sort of west coast of America like two years ago and when we went to San Francisco we had to go to the Castro I was like I have to go there it's yeah. like the massive history of gay rights you know campaigns in the US go back to the Castro district so mm -hmm. this reputation goes back to the late 1960s specifically during the summer of love in the neighboring Haight Ashbury district so the summer of love was in 1967 so to kind of sidetrack this side explanation a bit more, the High Ashbury District was the birthplace of the hippie counterculture of the 1960s. So High Ashbury is where all the best musicians of the 1960s lived. So right. literally within like a this one intersection of two roads in San Francisco, there was, you know, Janis Joplin, there was Jimi Hendrix, like they all lived in this like little street wow so you walk along the high ashbury like you walk along that road and it's like okay that's janice joplin's house that's where Jimi hendrix lived it's kind of mad wow when i was there we walked from the castro to high ashbury like it's in the same sort of area so high ashbury district predictably became quite like drug ridden and a bit violent yeah so that chased away the gay population who wanted a more stable area to live so they went to the castro so the Castro's named after there's a theatre there on the main road and, and that's obviously the Castro Theatre and it's full of like large Victorian houses that could be rented at low prices. It's where um, Harvey Milk lived, was the Castro. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of him. Yeah, so he's the most famous resident and like gay activist of the Castro. So he that's where his camera shop was that he operated out of when he was running uh -huh. for office and, and so a lot of people will know of the Castro via Harvey Milk if you've ever heard of him. Right, okay. And if you haven't, look him up. And watch the film Milk, because that's a great film. Mm -hmm. is, is, is it on Net I think it's on Netflix, isn't it? I think it's on Netflix, yeah. If it's not, it's on Amazon. It's definitely, you can definitely watch it somewhere. 
it's around. Yeah, so Phyllis and Dell have been living together for three years in San Francisco in the Castro District and they've co-founded the Daughters of Bilitis or... Bilitis is another pronunciation I saw online, but I'm going with Bilitis. Okay. It's also, it tends to be known as um, D-O-B or Dob or The Daughters. There's like different shortened versions. Uh-huh. So they founded this, um, I'll call it um, The Daughters in 1955. So The Daughters was the first lesbian civil and political rights organisation in the US. And it was conceived as a social alternative to lesbian bars because they were often subject to raids and police harassment. Because mm-hmm. bearing in mind, you're talking about like 1955, so it's yeah. it's so early on. And Phyllis and Dell had complained to a, like a gay male couple that they didn't know any other lesbians, and they were then introduced to another couple. And so, but there was three couples who basically formed the daughters then to make this group. Yeah. One of their main priorities was to be able to have a place to dance, and because dancing with the same sex in public was illegal at this time. Mm-hmm. So. The name Daughters of Bilitis was chosen in the second meeting. So Bilitis is the name of a fictional lesbian contemporary of Sappho, which I thought was quite Whoa. interesting to bring yeah. up here. Nice little link. So it's um, this is by it's by the French poet Pierre Louis in his 1894 work The Songs of Bilitis. So Bilitis lives on the island of Lesbos with Sappho in that story. Ah, okay. That's where it comes from. So um, nice. I thought that was a nice little link to our podcast there. Yeah. Yeah, so this name was chosen for its obscurity because even Martin and Lyon didn't really know what it meant. It was just this name that was to do with Sappho, it made sense, so they just went with that. Uh-huh. And then Daughters was meant to evoke association with other American social associations at the time, such as the Daughters of the American Revolution. Yeah. And um, early Daughters members felt that they had to follow two contradictory approaches. So they were trying to recruit interested potential members, but they also had to be secretive. So it's like right. a difficult like line to bit of a catch twenty two. Yeah, absolutely. They they defended the name and like later on they said that if anyone asked us they could just say they belong to a poetry club. So it was kind of a nice little veil. Oh yeah. And so they also designed a pin to be able to wear so that members could sort of identify with others in public, being subtle. And the club they uh-huh. chose club colours and they voted on the motto which is Q Vive, which is French for on alert. And that's kind of what they went with. Wow. Within a year of its creation, most of the original eight participants were no longer part of the group, but there were 16 members. As the Daughters game members, their focus shifted to providing support to gay women who were afraid to come out. So they educated them on their rights and gay history. And they especially wanted to reduce the like self-loathing that lesbians were feeling that was being brought on by, I guess, just mm-hmm. like the socially repressive nature of the time. Like it's just, it's the 50s, 60s, yeah. it's not acceptable really in common society yeah when you arrived at the meeting you would be greeted at the door and the greeter would say i'm like siobhan who are you and they would say you don't need to give me your real name not even your real first name it was just you could just come in and be yourself kind of thing but you didn't have to reveal your identity which i thought was really cool oh i like that so yeah so in october 1956 because Lyon and Martin both had backgrounds in journalism, they decided they should print a newsletter to distribute within the group. And in October 1956, it became The Ladder. Phyllis Lyon was the editor of The Ladder. It was the first nationally distributed lesbian publication in the US. It was one of the first publications ever to publish statistics on lesbians because they mailed surveys out to their readers in 1958 and 1964 and then published results of these surveys. their own evidence. Yeah, so they were just... Yeah, good idea. It's pretty cool. They just 
knew what they needed to do and they used the resources they had kind of thing. So yeah, so Daughters advertised itself as a woman's organisation for the purpose of promoting the integration of the homosexual into society. <laughs> That's like mouthful. Yeah. Its mission statement was set out in four parts, which were printed on the inside cover of every issue of The Ladder until 1970. So in summary, the four elements were, and, and they're written out in a longer form, but I've kind of summarised them a bit. So number one was education of the variant. So variant is used here because lesbian was a word that had like a really negative connotation in 1956. So you wouldn't call yourself a lesbian at this time. Mm-hmm. It just had, it was just a negative thing to be known uh-huh. as kind of thing. So it was education of the variant was number one. Number two was education of the public, leading to an eventual breakdown of erroneous taboos and, and prejudices. Number three was participation in research projects by duly authorised and responsible psychologists, sociologists and other experts directed towards further knowledge of the homosexual. And then number four was investigation of the penal code as it pertains to the homosexual proposal of changes and promotion of these changes through the due process of law in the state legislatures. Wow, a lot. But yeah, I think I get that. A lot. So this is like four key ideas for them. So... The organisation filed a charter for a non-profit corporation status in 1956. And first, like I said, they wrote a description for the charter so vague that it could have been a charter for a cat-raising club. Huh. So they literally... They did it on purpose. They just tried to get that non-profit. Yeah, purposefully kept it vague. The key thing for them was to keep the identity of the members secret because, you know, it's just protecting you. You wanted to be yeah. a part of the community, but also self-preservation was kind of key as well. So the ladder had around 500 subscribers, but the readership was way more than that because mm-hmm. copies were circulated amongst other women too. So if you had a subscription and you had a copy, you might then pass it out to other women without them having to subscribe. Yeah. So the true readership's kind of unknown, I guess, for this time. But yeah. by 1959, there were chapters of the Daughters in New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Rhode Island. So they'd spread across the country of America. Wow. The daughters were used as political fodder in 1959 mayoral race in San Francisco. So Russell Walden was challenging sort of the current mayor of San Francisco, George Christopher, and he distributed information implying that Christopher was making the city safe for sex deviants, in quotation marks. Mm, Right. So he sort of said that, like, he kind of named the, the group in it. So, for example, in the material, he had a quote that said, you parents of daughters do not sit back complacently feeling that because you have no boys in your family, everything is all right. To enlighten you to the existence of a lesbian organisation composed of homosexual women, make yourself acquainted with the name Daughters of Bilitis. So he, like, directly called them out. He outed them. Yeah, fully. For example, as well, there were only two copies of the subscription list for the ladder, so that was deliberately an attempt to discourage it getting into the hands of the wrong people. Mm-hmm. So the daughters moved the list from its headquarters and later found out that San Francisco police had searched the office after its removal. So the police raided the place trying to find it. Oh, that was close. Even the FBI was curious enough to attend meetings to report in 1959 that the purpose of the daughters is to educate the public to accept the lesbian homosexual into society. So... They were on the radar, but also quite successful at keeping, you know, their members private. And Yeah. In 1960, the Daughters held its first convention in San Francisco, which was so successful they held one every two years after that until 1968. 200 women attended the inaugural conference, as did the police, who came to check to see if any of the Daughters' members were wearing men's clothes. Right. So that was also legal. Yeah. 
So, and the convention in 1962 was covered on TV, so it did definitely gain traction and attention, both positive and negative. I also think it's worth stating as well, like, the the Daughters is based on the norm of the time, so LGBT organisations, pre-Stonewall riots, which is another lesson in LGBT history, Mm -hmm. but I think most people have heard of the Stonewall riots. Uh The brief version being it's when, at the Stonewall Bar in New York, they fought back. That's kind of a sparks notes version yeah but it was all about like lgbt movements at that time it was all a lot, a lot of it's called the homophile movement that's kind of what the original name was it was all about like respectability it was quite conservative it was about trying to seamlessly fit into society trying rather to than yeah literally yeah and rather than draw attention and stand out it was like oh we're just humans just treat us like that but they weren't you know fighting for a range of rights that we may be on now it was more about just not being persecuted yeah. at every second. And it was about sort of seeing them as respectable yeah. citizens of America and blending in rather than anything yeah. else. Trying to destigmatize from the, the sex pest kind of yeah. narrative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Daughters of Billiters actually ended up disbanding in 1970 because this kind of activism fell by the wayside because there was a rise of more radical activism post Stonewall. So Stonewall was 1969 and then it became no, we're out and we're proud and we want to fight for our rights and we're not going to hide away. And so the the sort of narrative shifted for the LGBT movement um, in America especially. And so, yeah, there was bolder demands for equality after that. So the daughters disbanded. But that doesn't mean that Lyon and Martin weren't active in other ways. So I thought you'd be interested in this part, actually. So both Lyon and Martin were active in the National Organization for Women, or NOW for short, since mm-hmm. 1967. So massive feminists here as well martin was the first open lesbian elected to the board of directors in now and so this is massively significant so i'm assuming you've heard of now maybe i've actually not no oh okay okay so here's i'll give you lesson number two um (laughs) no no yeah so now was how do i explain so now was um founded in part by Betty Friedan which you'll yeah heard of I know Betty, yeah of course I've heard and of her you know groundbreaking feminist book The Feminine Mystique so for anyone who doesn't know Helen's not along now she knows what I'm on about but um The Feminine Mystique kind of was all about women in the 50s and 60s and how it was about them having more rights they weren't contented to just be like housewives they should be able to go back to work and it was just even that alone was this yeah. massive statement and it prompted a, a feminist movement, the second wave of feminist yeah. movement in the US. Kind of came after um, the war when many women went into like factories and they had jobs mm-hmm. and were the main breadwinners. Yeah. Um, but then following that, they were just um, supposed to forget all that and return yeah. to their role as housewife baby maker. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think and like Betty Friedan was pointing out like, well, we don't want to just idly go back to doing that. We're used to being active in the workplace and. It was tackling the whole like public private spheres being separate and it was all like that. So yeah, so but now as an organization, so that was the National Organization for Women, they organized massive strikes. So some of the biggest like feminist protests and and marches and things like that have all been to do with to do with now as an organization. But it was perceived as quite a homophobic organization because Betty Friedan was she was against lesbian participation in the movement. Okay. So she saw the growing lesbian visibility within now as i quote a lavender menace is the that quote so she openly fired uh openly lesbian newsletter editor rita may brown who is a major she's a novelist she's a writer she's like 
she's quite a big LGBT writer. Um, some people might have heard of her. Yeah, another huge name in the history of LGBTQ rights. Mm-hmm. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about right now in terms of like Lavender Menace and stuff, go after this episode, Google Lavender mm-hmm. Menace and look at some of the protests that were staged within now after this to fight this. So she said that they were a lavender menace and then one clip in particular you'll find where they were having like a meeting and it, or it was a convention, Now's convention and all of the uh, lesbians from Now turned up in like purple t-shirts with lavender menace written on them and they like walked right. up to the stage and staged this big protest and they turned it around. So a lot of people ended up leaving Now and forming their own like radical lesbian feminist organisations. There's a group that ended up being called Radical Lesbians. That's like a group that broke away from this because of this issue. Yeah. So yeah, Lion and Martin were the first lesbian couple to join Now and they worked to combat the homophobia within the group. Uh So they encouraged the inclusion of lesbian issues as being feminist issues and that that should be recognised. In the Now sort of public address in 1971, they recognised that those were feminist issues as well. The couple also championed other groups and they weren't shy in standing up for what they believed. For example, Phyllis's wife, Martin, she was the, the first openly gay woman to be appointed to the San Francisco Commission on the Status of Women. And with Lion, they focused on the specific health issues affecting black and Latina gay women. So they weren't just focused on like only white women and lesbian issues in that way they were very aware of other groups yeah so for example as well the lion martin health services was founded in 1979 by medical providers and health activists and that was a clinic for lesbians who lacked access to non-judgmental and affordable health care yeah it was named after the couple it soon became a model for culturally sensitive community-based health care wow since 1993 Lion Martin has provided case management and primary health care in programs specifically designed for like low-income, uninsured women with HIV, and they they champion services for transgender people as well. So it's very, you know, focused on not there's not just one facet of feminism and there's not just one facet of like lesbianism, there's not just one type of an LGBTQ plus person, and they were like very aware of that. And things have been done in their name that obviously champions that as well yeah definitely their desire for making a tangible difference never changed as a couple so in 1989 they joined i loved this old lesbians organizing for change and um, and in 1995 they were named delegates to the white house conference on aging so they were just like yeah we're gonna make a difference for everything yeah (laughs) why not yeah if you have the drive literally yeah so They've been recognised for all this work as a couple. So, for example, for the pioneering work on the ladder, Lyon and Martin were amongst the first inductees for the LGBT Journalists Hall of Fame, which was established in 2005 by the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association. And then in 2004, they got married. Aww. This was despite the fact that same-sex marriage wasn't legal at a federal or state level. But they still got married. Yeah, nice. So... Mayor Gavin Newsom in San Francisco, he began issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples as a bit of a protest to the fact that this still wasn't legal. So they were the first couple to receive one from him. About a month later, the California Supreme Court invalidated their marriage and argued that the mayor had exceeded his legal authority. So that got... Annulled. Yeah, straight away. However, in 2008, the same court decided that same-sex marriage was legal and they remarried, this time legally, on the 16th of June, 2008. They once again were the first couple married in San Francisco and they were the only couple married by the mayor on that day. So that's like their day. Yeah, aww. 
the suits they wore to their weddings, like both weddings in 2004 and 2008, they wore the same suit both times. They're in a permanent collection at the GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco as well. So like on display there. Oh, cool. Yeah, they finally got married. But then, I mean, sadly, so Dell passed away two months later on the 27th of August 2008 because of complications to an arm bone fracture. Oh, no. So Phyllis was quoted as saying, I'm devastated, but I take some solace in knowing we were able to enjoy the ultimate right of love and commitment before she passed. Yeah. Oh, that's so heartbreaking. I know, I know. Well, it's the fact as well that they were married in the first place and for them that was they were married and then it, 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 you know, it just got taken away from them. Yeah, I know. This made me laugh as well. This is another one. <laughs> On the 26th of June 2015, when the US Supreme Court ruled that gay marriage was legal across the US, not just in the states that had ordered it themselves, um, Lion, who was 90 years old at the time, she apparently laughed and laughed when she was told the news and she said, well, how about that? For goodness sakes. That was her reaction. Just was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Bloody finally. <laughs> yeah. So over the years since Stell passed away, Phyllis, she developed dementia. But Kate Kendall, who I mentioned at the very top, that quote in her tribute to her, she said she never lost her humour. She never failed to love good food. And she never stopped missing Dell. Oh. That summed her up. Bless. And on the 9th of April this year, so 2020, for anyone listening later on, Phyllis Lyon passed away from natural causes in her San Francisco home. And, but I just, I just think that it's incredible. Even after her wife Dell passed away, Phyllis kept fighting for change. And it seems to be, like, this seems to be a bit of a tradition for me now. So I'm just going to end on a quote from her. <laughs> this is like the way I'm doing it. Go for it. Hit me up. Okay, so this is from a 2017 interview with the Bay Area Reporter. She said, If you've got stuff you want to change, you have to get out and work on it. You can't just sit around and say, I wish this or that was different. You have to fight for it. Yeah. And that is Phyllis Lyon and her wife, Del Martin. LGBTQ plus legends. And um, that's my little tribute to Phyllis Lyon and the impact she made in, you know, gay history, I guess. I love that. I'm, I I really love that. I think that quote as well is such, like, words to live by. Like, you can't... And it's one of the things, like, with being a journalist, I think sometimes there's the tendency to just sit and not be a keyboard warrior, but, like, sit and write articles and think you're doing a lot of difference. But, like... Yeah. Really, like, we've, we've got to get out there and fight for what we believe in and stuff. And, mm-hmm. yeah, I think... That was fantastic. She sounds like a really, you know, they they both sound like really fascinating women, really strong. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. They just knew that they wanted to fight for it. And um, they, they worked within their time as well. Like they knew that they were a product of the time. Like they knew that when they were originally fighting for like lesbian rights, it was simply they wanted somewhere to dance with each other. It wasn't yeah. this groundbreaking. I mean, even that is a groundbreaking thing, but it wasn't, they weren't fighting for you know, mad rights. They just wanted yeah. literally just to not be harassed by the police all the time. And um, they knew that it was, you know, it was quite a conservative movement. Like I say, it was very, like, traditionalist. Yeah. But the fact they kept fighting even till now and, and they wanted gay marriage and, and, yeah. But I love that they fought for groups that weren't just their own as well. I think that's very important to... I think that's the kind of truest bit of intersectionality. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think you can... If you're fighting for your own liberation rights... I don't think you can do that narrow-mindedly. I think mm-hmm. you've got to fight for everyone's rights. It's like that quote that Martin Luther King said, no one is free until we are all free. And it's so true. Like, you know, you can't fight for things narrow-mindedly. You've got to understand the plight of others. Like, 
fair enough you know you can fight for something on the rights of you know we're women and we're fighting for women's rights or gay and uh, lesbian like lgbtq people fighting for lgbtq rights but then there's all the the different layers to that there's you know Mm -hmm. religious minorities there's ethnic minorities there's working class people there's there's all these different yeah layers to it and it's so true like we won't have women's rights we won't have any lgbtq rights until everyone has those rights exactly yeah yeah i think exactly and i I think you can't argue for one group getting them ahead of anyone else and i also think you can't have the attitude of oh i don't know anyone from that group so i don't care about them yeah i think you have to be like okay well they need that like i just think it's they were very inclusive in their in the you know they're fighting for rights and i think that's something we should carry over agreed yeah. i think if you're ever in san francisco you should walk along the castro district and just like soak in that history a lot of movements i mean there's a building at the end there before you get to this giant pride flag which is like i have so many pictures underneath it it's flying like an american flag in the sky but it's a big pride flag on the building next to that it says the quote hope will never be silent and that's a harvey milk quote yeah and i think yeah you you just have to have that attitude and be able to fight for what you believe in for any group and i think that they as a couple epitomize that and um yeah so i i wanted to give them a little a little tribute i think yeah I can totally see why they're your 10th muses for this mm-hmm. week. Thank you for yeah. sharing. I loved that. I loved that story. Yeah. I This is a good one. I, this I is a enjoyed good one. yours a lot yeah. and I enjoyed telling mine. I think we're so. both <laughs> just really passionate about these people. Mm-hmm. That we can tell. Yeah. So I hope I hope everyone else got that and I hope everyone else is as like, I hope everyone enjoyed that as much as we did. Yeah. Let us know what you think. As usual, Yeah. send us comments on Instagram, Twitter, send us an email if you want and and also i think i'd be quite interested to hear like who have you enjoyed hearing about the most like who would you like to hear yeah what sorts of stuff about if you enjoyed like when helena delves into like mythological and like historical stuff okay if you enjoy that let us know um if you want to hear more musicians or more lgbt people anyone just you know tell us what you enjoy and um because these are the things that i mean everyone we've researched so far i found really interesting and so yeah I've been... but at the same time they've been really random yeah it's been a, a mixed bag there's of been people. such a mix mm-hmm. so yeah i mean tell, tell us what you like it probably won't change our minds as to who we're gonna pick but <laughs> it might help <laughs> I was like, I i'm know still who gonna I'm pick having. who i want to pick <laughs> but yeah we hope you enjoy it and it's, it's also just nice to to hear which people you like hearing about as well yeah, follow us on um, Instagram and Twitter. Instagram especially, we do a lot of our announcements on there. That's the easiest place to see us. Whack us on notifications. Get get all the notifications straight to your phone. That's uh, Use that technology. Yeah, we post a lot of updates on Insta. But yeah, but th- we really appreciate you listening and listening to this one after we've had a little break. Thank you for coming back to us. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.